0: I'm in Jesus' name and through His blood, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for a powerful presence of the Lord that's here in an awesome way. We thank you for the heavens to open your glory here. Holy Spirit, as you come anoint and empower this time, but Lord, I thank you right now by your Holy Spirit moving upon every one of us to help us be good soil. For the work of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, just uh, our hearts and minds are soft and tender, we're good soil. And as you speak through me the words of life, like living seeds, the truth that are sown out in that good soil, watered by the Holy Spirit, they'll take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains. So Jesus comes, that this will be like the parable of the seed and sower, the, so- the seed that was sown into good soil and brought forth a harvest. And, Lord, I thank you for the winds of your Spirit carrying the seed out everywhere it's supposed to go, and your mighty angels going to war and just driving back any hindrance. Lord, we submit this time unto you. We resist the devil. Anything that would try to steal the seed, we bind the enemy. You will back off right now in Jesus' name. We break your power. And, Lord, I thank you for clearing any hindrance out. And we stand on the promise, this will go forth and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do. Everything will be accomplished and through this sermon, in every life. Your word does not return void, but it will accomplish it. We thank you for it in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so I'm going to get into the word tonight, and I'm talking about some lessons of Azusa. I'm still on part nine, but I'm going to do kind of a B and then a C next week. I guess kind of an addendum, if you will, to what I've been talking about. But Having studied revival history, there was something that began. if you can just follow me for a second in the mid 1700s with Wesley and Edwards and them, there was something that began <clears throat> and as it waned just a little bit, people began to pray, and it came back up, the same revival came back up in the Second Great Awakening with Cambridge, etc. and then it just kind of waned a little. And Finney helped be a bridge between that second and third awakening, and then Jeremiah Lampier and these guys praying kind of brought it back up again. But it was it was the same type of outpouring, if you will, from the mid 1700s to the mid 1800s. There was there was about a around a hundred year period there where God moved in a certain way. It was primarily among the Presbyterians and the Baptists, and then the newly formed Methodists that came out of, they were followers of John Wesley. So that was like an early wave of the Holy Spirit, okay? When it came to the late 1800s and we moved into the 20th century, something changed. And I believe personally it was directly connected to the end times because just as in the natural, this is, I just have to say it in passing, it'd be a big rabbit trail, but the nation of Israel, God began to move uh, there was talk of, of Zionism and all that in the late 1800s. The land of Israel got freed up in the First World War. And then, of course, the nation of Israel was birthed after the Second World War. So there was something going on to prepare things in the natural for end time prophecy. In the same, at the same time, this is what I want to focus on, though God was moving. And it was a different way. We had about 100 years of a certain move of the Spirit. And now what happened was a man by the name of John Alexander Dowie began to see powerful healings. And at the same time, Parham got healed and was, was preaching on what he called the apostolic faith, which was just Book of Acts Christianity. He believed in uh, tongues. He believed in healing, etc. They began, he got a Bible school going, they began to pray about 1901, January, the Holy Spirit fell, they were baptized in the Holy Spirit, and then we know Seymour came, and, and we know about Azusa, but something was birthed there in the late 1800s, early 1900s that was different. It was like the same move of the Spirit that had happened previously, but now God added another dimension there of the Holy Spirit where the Holy Spirit was coming in a way of power, and here's what it was. It had to do with the baptism in the Holy Ghost, and that people would be filled with the Spirit speaking in tongues, and that there would be a power to destroy the works of the devil and to see healings and miracles. Did y'all just catch what I said? It was a restoration. Just like in the natural, God was restoring things with Israel, it was directly connected and is connected to end-time prophecy being fulfilled. In the same way, when we switched over to the 20th century, something began. And there was even a prophecy back then. Seymour said in about 100 years, there would be a, another revival like unto this. So there was, there was a wave, and I'm going to show you. The first 100 years was one wave now. The next hundred years was another. It started around that time, 1900, all the way into, um, here's how it ebbed and flowed when I studied it. It seemed like the same move of the Holy Spirit diminished a little and then came back up in the 40s and 50s. Do you remember that? And and I'll teach on it more as we go because I haven't got there yet. But the power to see bondages broken, to see people delivered from demons, to see people healed. It was awesome, and, and then it kind of ebbed and flowed into the 60s with the Jesus revival and then into the 70s, and I think, in my opinion, it, that dimension and that wave of the Spirit kind of died off with A.A. Allen and Catherine Coleman. She died in 76, and God began to shift something again. It was time for things to go up another notch again, and so we had a little respite there where we had kind of a revival in the 80s. That I'll talk about later, but when we moved into the 90s, things radically changed. It really started in the late 80s, mid to late 80s in Argentina, but there was an end time move that brought in a dimension of the glory of God. So, follow me. If you look at it from, like if we were studying history and you look at a hundred year period, then another around a hundred year, then the next, we're looking at kind of a, a large landscape of time. But there was one move of the Spirit, and then when we got in the 20th century, God added another dimension that brought in the power of God, the baptism in the Holy Spirit power. And then when we got into around the 90s, God brought another dimension on top of that with an intense glory that came in. And I'll talk more about that as we get into those uh, later on in this series, But God has been building. Heaven must receive Christ until the restoration of all things. In the natural, Israel will experience the full restoration, eventually even rebuilding the temple and reinstituting the offerings. But, of course, it will bring a judgment. But in the spiritual, God is going to restore everything back before Jesus comes. Everything. I believe everything. I mean, like shadows healing the sick, everything you read about in the book of Acts Christianity we're going to see fully restored before Jesus comes. And so we're at a time of an ebb and flow where we're about to see another wave. God began something in the late 80s and into the 90s, and it was a great wave, and that and it's had a little bit of an ebb now, but I believe it's time that God's going to bring that back up again, but it's going to be even more intense. And it's going to be, in my opinion, I believe it's going to be the final wave that's going to accomplish what has to be done. A supernatural harvest has to come in. And it's not going to be our human efforts. It's going to be by the power of the Holy Spirit. And there's going to be Book of Acts Christianity, tremendous healings and deliverances. But ultimately, God is also preparing a remnant bride to be deeply purged, filled with extra oil. We're going to meet the Lord in the air when he comes. And so this is kind of the final wave. And so we had one wave for about 100 years, and then God added to it. We had another wave uh, for around, around 100 years almost. And now we're coming into the we're in, rather the third great wave, if you will, that's going to usher in the Lord's coming. So let me just talk a little bit about Azusa. So go back in time with me. And we're going to go to the late 1800s, uh, 1897, 98, 99, and the early 1900s. So the late 1800s, early 1900s, about a decade there. I'm going to talk about some things that's been going on and just kind of give you some lessons. So Isaiah 43, 19, God had been moving in a particular way. Like I said, it was more Presbyterian and Baptist, et cetera. Now... God was going to birth Pentecost. You realize until Azusa Street, there was no Pentecostal denominations. You do understand that, right? You ever thought about that? Every Pentecostal movement that we have today has its roots back at Azusa. And you could say Topeka, Kansas. That's where it really started, I guess. But it exploded at Azusa. So let me show you Isaiah 43, verse 19. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Everybody say, new thing. God is going to do a new thing, and I believe that he's about to do something new in our time as well. And it says, now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it and know it? And will you not give heed to it? I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. How I many knows that God gives us rivers even in dry places? And he said in Isaiah 44, 3, I will pour out water on him who is thirsty and streams on dry ground. You know, I think that people that haven't studied revival history have a lot of misconceptions. But the truth is that God waits until times get really desperate before he pours out out his spirit. And I think that people think somehow that, well, if everything's right, God will move. It seems like as I've studied revival history, everything was wrong when God moved. And that's why God moved was to fix it. Society went to an all-time low. Morality was was on the decline. The church was backslid. And then God said, I'm going to step in now and save the lost and clean up the house of God and move in power. So let's go back and look at some of this. When we were there, my wife and I was at Bonnie Bray Street. We met with a lady named Sister Soul, who is a Filipino lady, precious intercessor, and she owned the house back years ago in the 80s. And eventually, a particular denomination purchased it, and they own it today, and have turned it into a house of prayer. So it's not actually a livable house, but it's, it's a house where people come to seek the Lord, and God is there. Um, she sat down and wanted to talk to us and pray with us, and she was giving me some backstory. And I want to share some of this tonight, because I believe there's some lessons to be learned here. We want revival. I know River of Life, God has brought a certain group of people among us that are hungry for a move of God. But number one, there's a price to pay for a move of God. And then there's a price to pay during the move of God. And I'm going to show you some of that tonight. We have to pay the price of humbling ourselves in prayer and fasting, deeply consecrating our lives, going after God, pressing in. And there is a price. There's an element of spiritual warfare. There's things that we go through, there's betrayals, there's hardships, but all of this, there's a price to be paid. When God comes down, everything we've been through is worth it. And Seymour had went through a lot. He he was a son of a slave, and you got to understand the times. It may be difficult for some people in our generation to really understand how bad it was back then for black people. But Seymour was the son of a slave, and he was from Louisiana, for, so he was from a deep south area. Understand what I'm saying? There was a lot of racism back then in Louisiana, and he had gotten polio and lost one of his eyes, and so he, was one, he only had one good eye. And being the son of a the slaves, he had no formal education. So having no education, of course, that didn't look good either. When you're being a leader, people expect you to be educated, you see. And so Seymour, being hungry for God and just desperate, he finds himself, Charles Parham, a few years prior, in the, at the turn of 1901, they had bought Stone's Folly, or rented it or whatever, and it turned into a Bethel Bible School, and they had 35 students in the upper room crying out to God. God baptized them in the Holy Ghost. I mean a powerful move of God swept in there. They saw tongues of fire. They were speaking in other tongues. I mean, people were collapsing under the power. It was a strong move of God. And so Parham began to talk about this. Him and others that were there in the Bible school began to go out of Topeka, Kansas and talk about their experience and preach the word about, it is God's will to heal today. It is God's will to baptize in the Holy Ghost. We experienced it ourselves, and they were preaching along these lines, right? seymour heard of this he was hungry and so he goes to houston texas where parham from what i've read parham got sick temporarily and and some friends of his took care of him there in houston so it made him kind of stop traveling and they urged him why don't you do a bible school here so he got a facility and began to get some students and what's he teaching this is important See, up until this point, the move of God in America was Presbyterian and Baptist and Methodist. We did not have any doctrine about Pentecost. That's what they were trying to formulate. They were saying God hadn't changed. God still baptizes in the Holy Ghost. God still uses us to speak in other tongues, but they needed to formulate some type of a doctrine about it so that you could teach it, and so it could be in our statement of faith. You understand? That's important. That's important because for it to go generation to generation, there needs to be some scripture to stand on and some sermons about it so that the next generation will believe for it in their generation. So Parham heard about this, and he was so hungry, he went there to the Bible school. I'm sorry, Seymour heard of this and went to the Bible school, and Parham saw the hunger in him. And he thought, well, look, I'll make it available, but there was Jim Crow laws and there was segregation and you could not be in the same classroom, blacks and whites. It, it just, it wasn't there. You couldn't share the same bathrooms. You couldn't share the same water fountains. There was segregation laws. So what, Parham, or what Se- Parham did for Seymour was open the door and let him sit right outside there so that he could listen into the class. And Seymour was so humble and hungry, he sat out there and absorbed everything he could. He learned as much as he could. And so then the opportunity arose that Seymour had kind of went to a Bible school for a time, if you will, under Parham. And so a door opened. There was a group of people in L.A., a small church that the lady that was heading up the church, Julia Hutchinson, they were believing for a, a male pastor to come in and take over the church, and they were praying about it. And so Seymour got the invitation. He came out there to L.A., And when he came in and he preached, he opens his Bible and preaches on Acts chapter 2, the baptism in the Holy Ghost in tongues for today. Well, they did not receive the message at all. They padlocked him out. So hear what I'm saying. First off, Seymour experienced rejection in his life in the deep south of that time because of his ethnicity which he ends up leaving the area and going to L.A., and that probably had to do with some of why he left. He probably was thinking, I want to do something for God, but because of the racism here in the South, it was hard for him to really be all God. So anyway, this door opens, he goes there, and then first off, he experienced rejection because of his race. Now he's experiencing rejection because of the word of God he's preaching. He's padlocked out. I mean, he kind of sold the farm, if you will, to go there, and he stepped out in faith, and now his job is the door is shut in his face. And so Seymour really didn't know what to do, but there was a man by the name of Edward Lee, and he was associated with this church, and he lived a couple blocks away from Bonnie Bray Street. And so he told Seymour, he said, you know what, if you come and stay with me at my house, My wife and I will give you a room. You can live with us until you figure out what you're going to do. So Seymour comes to stay with them, and they begin to make that house there with Edward Lee a house of prayer. And people began to come to the prayer meetings there. And it began to grow. The presence of the Lord was there. And so it began to outgrow the house. So Edward Lee told him, said, Well, we know a couple that would open their house to you and their names were Richard and Ruth Asbury, and it was a black couple that lived at two, I believe at the time it was two fourteen Bonnie Bray Street, but they changed it later on to two sixteen. But anyway, they lived on Bonnie Bray Street, and so Seymour didn't live there, but he was going there and he was spending something like five to seven hours a day in prayer. I mean, they he was desperate. He himself was preaching the baptism of the Holy Spirit, even though he hadn't experienced it personally. That takes faith. He was crying out to God, and and Richard and Ruth Asbury were joining with him, and a a lot of African Americans were coming to these prayer meetings, and there were also some whites. As As a matter of fact, Frank Bartleman came through there once and prayed with them, but they were believing for revival. They were believing for the baptism in the Holy Ghost, to see what I call Book of Acts Christianity today. And on April the 9th, 1906, the Holy Spirit fell on those that were gathered there at Bonnie Bray Street, just like he fell on the day of Pentecost. Many of them collapsed to the ground. They burst forth speaking in tongues. The power of God blew through that place, and it was awesome. And as God fell so powerfully, same thing as Acts chapter 2. I mean, they're speaking in tongues really loud. They're going outside the house doing it. Pretty soon, news started spreading about this. So people started gathering to Bonnie Bray Street, hearing about those that are speaking in tongues. And they began to fill up the lawn out there. They, they went out into the street. Neighbors started getting irritated and so they contacted the police, and a policeman came out. And guess what happened when he came up to the house to talk to him? He got saved and baptized in the Holy Ghost. And so he was no longer going to try to hinder anything after that. And the front door as it opens and there's a porch, William Seymour just put a podium there, and he was preaching because everybody was in the lawn and out on the street. And people were begin, beginning to get hit by the power of God so hard, they were collapsing on the ground, rolling around on the ground, speaking in tongues. And seriously, people started ridiculing that. That really is a, a term, holy roller, that they were making fun of it. And I'll, I'll show you that actually the newspaper in L.A. was making fun of it. And so were other Christians. But that's what was happening. The Holy Spirit was hitting people, and they were falling on the ground, rolling around, speaking in other tongues. I mean, hit by the power of God. And at some point, the porch that Seymour was on, I mean, just collapsed under the weight. And nobody got hurt miraculously. But Seymour knew that they had to find another place. And Sister Soul was telling us about this. And Sandy will tell you, she looked at us and said, you know, everybody says it was because there were so many people on the porch, But she said, truthfully, there wasn't hardly anybody on the porch. She said they were in the lawn and on the street listening. She said, I believe the weight of God's glory coming down pressed down so hard it collapsed the porch. That's what she said was her opinion as to what happened. So Seymour decides, man, we've got to find another place. We've obviously outgrown this. So they go to the Azusa Street Mission which I believe was previously owned by a church at some time at some time earlier, and then it was turned into a stable. And so they had um, all the animal feces, all that in there, and they had to go in and kind of clean it out. And they took these wooden crates, and they nailed 2 before's on it to make benches. They move a piano in there. It has a loft, and so the loft area became William Seymour's house. And the bottom part began to be the church. And all they had was a piano. And as I was there, Sister Soul was saying, you know what Bonnie Bray Street represented? She said it was a place where people were deeply repenting. God was doing a deep work in them. And it was a place of unity and deep repentance where the Holy Spirit fell. You still feel the Lord there to this day. Psalm 24, three through four, the famous scripture of the Hebridean revival. But who will ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in the holy place? He that has clean hands and a pure heart. Bonnie Bray Street was a place where people were, their hands were getting clean. Their heart was getting purified. They were unifying together. The presence of the Lord that was there was washing away any type of uh, racism or anything like that. They just came together desperate for a move of God. Hebrews 12, 14 says, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. How many knows without holiness, no man will see the Lord? That's important. I'm going to come back to that later. Remember that scripture. So again, in your notes, I'm just reading here, Bonnie Bray became a house of humility, deep repentance, and prayer that produced the baptism of the Holy Spirit and tremendous healings. There was a nearby neighbor, a precious black lady by the name of Jenny Moore, She was powerfully touched in the revival and supernaturally anointed by God and taught the piano that she could play it for them, and she had never played before. That was a little later on in the revival, but there was a man that played the piano also there, and they would say at Azusa that there would be like a little gentle uh, haze on the floor, like fog or something. And Brother Seymour would have everybody just kind of worshiping in tongues, and they would play the piano. And as they began to sing in the Spirit, that cloud would fill the place. And they said it sounded like not only was there a piano, but it sounded like there were other instruments, and it even sounded like there were more voices singing than who was actually present. It was such an open heaven, such a presence of God there. Well, later, Jenny Moore married William Seymour. But the common manifestations that took place at Azusa was falling on the ground, like being struck down by the power of God. Like a quick, um, if you will, like a lightning strike, the power just hit, thrown to the ground, rolling on the ground, hit by the power. And people rolled on the ground, speaking in tongues, weeping in repentance. Deep prayers of intercession. The sound at Azusa they said it sounded like howling and wailing. You know what that was? The intercessors groaning and travailing even deep into the night. And also joy of the Lord. This brought great criticism, and the derogatory phrase, holy roller, was created to mock this activity of Holy Spirit, as I previously mentioned. But as God Almighty began to quake, this was one of the stories I read while I was there at Bonnie Bray Street, Years before, I don't remember exactly when, but before 1906, Mariah Woodworth-Edder went to California, and she preached there. If I'm not mistaken, and I could be wrong, I think it was San Francisco. But nonetheless, she went to California and had those powerful meetings. Mariah Woodworth-Edder was powerfully used of God. It seems like God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise because it was unheard of in her time for women preachers to be out there preaching. She blazed a trail, but she said that she had to do what God called her to do, but she was not well received. But the power of God was so strong on her meetings that she would be up there preaching, and people would just go into a trance. And I mean just go into another world, just like Peter did when the he had that vision of the, the sheath that opened and all those unclean animals lord said kill any people go into a trance and they would come out getting saved and right with god i mean it was so powerful and anyway she had went there and in california she was not well received at all she was persecuted ridiculed they basically tried to run her out of town and she prophesied she said there's coming a judgment because of this and she left town years later And remember the beginnings of California, anybody that knows anything about spiritual warfare and about principalities and powers and about how history affects things, what was California's beginnings, remember? It was the gold rush. People were fleeing out there with greed to strike it rich, and it also became what? The Wild West. There was a bunch of outlaws and a lot of things going on, okay? So remember that, because that spiritual atmosphere, you wonder why that area still has so many problems today. You can trace a lot of things back to its beginnings, okay? But anyway, so when William Seymour was there, in Bonnie Bray Street, the Holy Spirit fell, let me just read what I was reading there. I wrote it here. It says, "As God Almighty, His power began to quake the people.'" Out of their chairs and off their feet under the power of the Holy Spirit, striking them to the ground, a prophecy came forth that great destruction which was soon to come to the Lamb. The saints began to plead with the sinners to repent of their ways of sin and to choose to walk with God. Less than ten days after the warning, the prophecy on Bonnie Bray Street, the 1906 earthquake hit San Francisco. It was devastating for anybody that knows about that quake. It brought major devastation. But the spiritual earthquake and the geological earthquake occurred only a few days apart. It reminds me of Mount Sinai when God came down on the mountain. It says that the earth actually shook violently as God descended on Mount Sinai. So there is a connection to that. News spread, people began to gather. I've already talked about this. Um, but here's what I want to skip down to severe persecution. So there's a price to pay in prayer, and there's, then there's a price to pay in regard to persecution. There's going to be persecution from the world, but that's expected. But let me tell you, there's going to be persecution from Christians too They don't understand the move of God. That's happened in every generation. Back in our first Great Awakening under Wesley, man, Wesley had so-called Christians running him out of the church. I mean, they would throw eggs and food at him as he was preaching out on the streets. Edwards, when the Holy Spirit fell at his church, they had the older group that were already saved. They didn't like the move of God and were against what was going on. They called him, I think, the older lights and the new lights. He was pr- trying to put terms to it. But nonetheless, there's always been a persecution there from the religious. So I'm just telling River of Life, please hear me. Be ready for it. We want revival, and then revival comes. We'll be ready for the persecution of the world and the Christian community. So let me just read this. As I was reading through the notes that were there, that they Sister Soul gave me some stuff, and I was taking notes. And the one of the newspaper articles wrote this, and this is a quote, okay? The newspaper article was making fun of the Asusa Street Revival. Apparently, news reporters were going to Asusa and then looking at what was going on and writing about it. And it says, a new sect of fanatics is breaking loose they make weird babbling sounds and they never dismiss church <laughs> that would be awesome god just sends such a move that we just come in shifts he just keeps going it's coming shifts right another criticism in the newspaper stated disgraceful intermingling of the races that's interesting right there isn't it see that was persecuted even in the world They cry and make howling noises all day and into the night. They run, they jump, they shake all over. (laughs) They shout at the top of their voice, spin around in circles and fall out on the sawdust blanketing the floor, jerking, kicking, and rolling all over it. Some of them even pass out and don't move for hours as though they were dead. These people appeared to be mad, insane is what it means, mentally deranged or under a spell. They claim to be filled with the Spirit. And this is a direct quote from the newspaper, okay? I'm just reading it as it was. that said, they have a one-eyed, illiterate Negro as a preacher who stays on his knees much of the time with his head hidden between wooden crates. You remember reading about that? He put a wooden crate over his head. That was his prayer shawl, man. And he doesn't talk very much, but at times could be heard shouting, repent, as he's supposed to be running the thing. They repeatedly sing the same song. Apparently, this reporter didn't like the song they sang. (laughs) The song was called The Comforter Has Come. Alas, on July 23rd, I'm sorry, also on July 23rd, 1906, the L.A. Daily newspaper cartoonist drew pictures mocking and blaspheming the activity of the Azusa Street Mission. And I saw the pictures. I sent, I took pictures of them and sent them to you guys, but I don't have them on here. But were there was a cartoonist that was paint drew pictures mocking the revival. Different aspects of it, like people falling or, or speaking in tongues or whatever. So it was very blasphemous of what was going on. But here's the thing: as is with every revival, the negative reports only fueled the desire for people to come. Did you know that? that happened at toronto the more criticism toronto got the more people went to toronto that happened at brownsville the more people criticized the revival the more people packed up and went there to check it out so it's free advertisement the world's going to persecute the things of god okay and the, the religious will too but you have to be ready it said about the Azusa Street Revival that the blood of Jesus, the presence of God washed away all lines of division between economic lines or racism. I mean, they would have people coming in, and the presence of God was such that the blacks and whites were kneeling together, the rich and poor were together. It made no different, different denominations. Nobody cared. They were just in the presence of God receiving what God was doing. It, the blood of Jesus washed away. And that's what Seymour would say. He he spoke of it as it was truly a miracle because in that day it would have been. He said, the blood of Jesus has come in and washed away the racism. He said, we all come together in the presence of God. People came from all over to receive the fullness of what God was doing. I mean, people were traveling great distances. This was the days of horse and buggy. People were coming from very far to, to see what was happening at Azusa. The Holy Spirit brought deep repentance and many experienced salvation. Tremendous healings broke forth. The bedridden leaped out of cots. Cripples stood up and walked. Crutches and canes were thrown away. Creative miracles happened. The blind could see. The mute broke forth in tongues and deaf ears popped open. God came in such power that tremendous healings and miracles took place. There was many, many stories I've read about it. As Sousa, Tommy Welcher wrote a book about they told me their stories, if you want to read that, it's an excellent source. But there was one young man who was uh, probably 14 at the time, something like that, and he was there at, at the revival. He was part of those that were, you know, there all the time, And this man stumbled in. He was a very large man. And he bumped into this young man, and he just reeked of alcohol. I mean, he was drunk. And the young man asked him, what are you you here for, sir? And then he realized that the guy was just totally blind. And he said, well, he said, I hear that people are getting healed here. He's as drunk as you can... And and the young man said, okay. He said, well, let's pray together. And you know that young man just prayed for him, and his eyes popped open. The guy started crying because he could see. He sobers up, gives his life to the Lord, and becomes a preacher. That's one of countless. There's no telling how many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stories of people that were healed. And I sent the video to you guys, but you can look this up. The 700 Club did a story on the Crow Indian Nation. And they're having a revival. And they were talking about the move of God there. And you could feel it when they were talking about it. I could feel it. And one lady, an elderly lady said this. She said, the Crow Nation has been declared that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And she said what happened was her, like, grandmother went to the Azusa Street Revival and received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, came back to the Crow Nation and began to preach about it. And they still to this day, are experiencing the power of revival in the Crow Nation. Isn't that awesome? And they have a big sign that says uh, the Crow Nation belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, I mean, they've given themselves to the Lord. But they have their roots back in a Susa Street Revival. So there's a couple things. I just wanted you to see the persecution that goes along with revival. Seymour and them had to man, they had to endure that persecution. And Charles Parham, who had been a spiritual father to him, came, and Parham didn't like what was going on. I guess nobody knows what all was talked about, but he seemed like he didn't care for the manifestations. I don't think that he liked um, that there wasn't segregation. And I think that he also felt very uncomfortable with somebody that was uneducated like seymour leading it but nonetheless seymour had to padlock parham out of the revival and run him off isn't that sad that was his spiritual father and you know as well as i do that hurt him to do that it hurt him as he felt rejected by him so seymour went on with this major revival that happened i mean there was the fire department called because there was a pillar of fire over the church several times The place was filled with the Shekinah glory. You could literally see a cloud in the place many times. So many healings and miracles. There was no way to keep up with all of them. Many people saved. Lives transformed forever. Missionaries being baptized and the Holy Ghost sent to the nations of the world. All this going on. In the midst of it, when Seymour married Ginny Moore, there was a lady that was overseeing, I guess, the mailing list. She got offended because she wanted Seymour to marry her, and so she took the mailing list and left. And unfortunately, this was probably a Jezebel spirit, but let me tell you why it's such a big deal. That mailing list was a major key to the revival because they were doing teachings and talking about the testimonies of the revival, and then they would send it out all over, and the mailing list was going everywhere. What was happening was people were getting this and reading the testimonies, They were telling others about it, and everybody was going to Azusa to receive. When the mailing list stopped sending out letters, everybody thought the revival was over and quit coming. This was a real move of Satan to shut down the revival, and it worked. It was a Jezebel spirit. It was a power grab. And unfortunately, Sister Soul said this. She said, William Seymour died of a broken heart over that mailing list issue because the revival began to wane after that. And that really was a big part of it. A lot of people wanted to control the revival. A lot of people wanted to um, use it for their name and fame or whatever. And I think Seymour felt he had to do this at the time just to keep some kind of order. And he put on an apostolic faith mission just giving it a name because it wasn't really a church or anything. It was just a hub of revival. So people were coming in from other churches kind of wanting to control it, if you will, or take it over, or say it's ours, or make it a part of their church. Does that make sense? Everybody wanted a piece of it, and so Seymour felt like he had to do that. Bartleman felt that that also was the beginning of the end because they began to denominationalize the, um, the revival. I don't know. But this is something, a lesson to be learned. Sister Soul told me, she said, listen, When everybody came to Bonnie Bray, she said it was about humility and unity that brought revival. But she said Azusa Street eventually became a place of division where the revival was lost. Isn't that sad? And it's interesting to this day, right now, if you go to L.A., the Azusa Street mission is gone. Destroyed a long time ago. There's just a little plaque there. But yet, Bonnie Bray Street, that house is still there, and it's still got God's presence in it, and still people come there from all over the world. Isn't it interesting what I just said? Let me say it again. Bonnie Bray was the place of unity and prayer and deep repentance that brought revival. God's still there. But Asusa Street was the place where there was division and the loss of revival, and even the physical structure's gone. Now, let me tell you. I wondered about, because, you know, Fernando, for those listening to this, comes to our church here, came up to me and said, Pastor Scott, you're talking about Topeka, Kansas. He said, I'm going to go there. Where's that place at? So I I knew a little bit about the revival, but I had never read about what actually happened to Stone's Folly. So apparently, Parham and them just leased it for a time, and the guy that came in after them was a bootlegger. He was using it as a distillery, and, you know, promoting alcohol abuse. And you know what? The place caught fire and was destroyed. Listen to what I'm saying. That was holy ground. And then that guy came in and did that with it. God let that happen. So the same thing with the Susa. It was holy ground. But when division and all this other stuff came, it, it's no accident, in my opinion, that it no longer is there at all. Even the physical structure is torn down. I mean, you can go to Cambridge. Ridge which was 100 years older than a Sousa Street Mission, and that structure's still there. The presence of God is still there. But it was not a place of division. It didn't lose the revival. Barton Stone, I know I'm backtracking. I've already talked about it, but he made a big deal about this. He said, don't turn this into a denomination. We're not going to control it. It doesn't belong to us. This revival will just assimilate, if you will, or you could say dissimilate out, to the greater body of Christ, to all who want it. He even wrote a last will and testament to that effect and had people officially sign it like a legal document. And because of that, the presence of God is still there. I'll laugh, though, every time I go by the disciples of Christ, and anybody listening to this that's a part of that, we love you guys. It's not a derogatory thing. But the disciples of Christ is a denomination that formed out of that. No, and I laugh every time thinking that's the last thing. Bart, I can just hear Barton Stone in his grave right now. I told you guys, don't make it a denomination, and they still did it. Every move of God has been turned into a denomination. And then it loses its power, and it just becomes about education. Did everybody just hear what I said? That's historically a fact. So what are some things that we can learn? Well, obviously, we need to keep it a house of unity and don't give Jezebels the mailing list, right? That's lesson number two. (laughs) But some things that we can learn from this, reverencing God's house in the presence of God. I've told this story a lot, but just for people that haven't heard it, when I went to Brownsville years ago, I went many times, but one time I went with a group from a particular church, And there was one of the leaders of the church that took us and and was driving down there. And I noticed as we were sitting in our chairs, he had pulled out some anointing oil and he was anointing his, his head and his hands and he was just, he seemed really serious about being there, you know. And I was watching, I was a very young man and he saw me watching him. He said, here, you want to anoint yourself? And I really respected the fact because he was telling me, he said, we're on holy ground. And I could see the respect that he had for being in God's house and in God's presence. Did everybody hear that? We need that today. I say this a lot, but it's true. That's been lost. And now, in many places, the sanctuary is no longer even called that. It's called an auditorium. And it's not a place that's holy per se. It's a place that has become motivational speeches and entertainment and a social club. And a lot of worldliness has crept in. But we need the restoration back of the holy fear of God, that we've come to God's house, this is holy ground, we're in God's presence, that we reverence that, we respect that, and people are careful. They're careful about what they're doing. They're careful about what they're talking about because you're in the presence of God. How many knows when you're in the manifest presence of God, you're convicted about your gossip? You're convicted about a lot of things. People are going to check themselves before they come to church. Now I'm going to close out with a couple of things, uh, two things, and I'll do um, the last one first, actually. So also other things I've read about Azusa. William Seymour, from what I've read, sent for Parham's help because he he knew God was moving, obviously, but the devil was also trying to bring in some weirdos that were kind of into the occult or something, and they were kind of trying to infiltrate in. The devil will always try to do that. We've had weird people come through here. Any place that's going to see a move of God's going to have weird people show up. That's just the way it is, and Seymour was concerned because he felt about himself, well, I am uneducated, and You know, I don't maybe know how to handle everything. And so I read that that's why he originally sent for Parham to come to kind of help him. But Parham did not handle that well. He wanted to take over or maybe shut some things down. So be careful, River of Life. Please hear me about the wolves in sheep's clothing. The last time I saw Brother Holt, he's always been very prophetic in my life. He's never been wrong. Scary, accurate. And he told me he really felt to warn me, be careful about the wolves in sheep's clothing. He's out in East Texas in a small area. He said, where you're at in Dallas, he said, there's a lot more wolves and the potential for more of that. He said, just be careful about wolves. He felt that Satan would try that. And we have had some people come through that I've had to kind of run off. So wolves and sheep, did did you guys see that video I sent, Bobby Connor? That lady that uh, was a witch. Yeah, so anyway, let me tell the story real quick about infiltrators. Because Cindy and I knew a lady personally that Sandy led to a Lord that was a Satanist that would go to a particular church. And she worked in in the government with the social working and stuff like that. She was a a hardcore Satanist. Her whole family was. Other people, there was a medical doctor and a, a policeman that were in her coven. And she attended that local church. Nobody knew anything. They thought she was just a good Christian. She was there to destroy the church. And so we knew this lady personally and sat down and talked with her. And she's like, infiltration is common. I mean, this is what the devil does. He sends them in. Back to Bobby Connor's story. He's going through praying for people, and there's a sweet little lady that, uh, you know, had her hair up in a bun. She looked like Pentecostal grandma like a powerful woman of God to him, you know? But she was praying in tongues, and he said that his spirit felt very off about her. I mean, immediately, he had a major check in his spirit. And he said, Lord, what am I dealing with? And the Holy Spirit said, she's cursed, She's a witch, and she's actually cursing you in an unknown tongue. But it was witchcraft. And so Bobby tells the pastor, brother, that lady's cursing us. And, he's, and that pastor blew up on him. That's the stupidest, most idiotic thing I've ever heard in my life. She is our head intercessor. God help us all. And so Bobby's sitting here trying to pray for people. He's feeling it. He's being like an oppression from this lady. He said, Lord, the pastor's mad at me now. What do I do? And the Lord told him, said, pray in Jesus' name that what she's saying is forced out in English. So he prayed that and meant it. All of a sudden, this sweet little lady with a hair in a bun is yelling out at the top of her lungs. Everybody heard her, F you and F your Jesus in a church service. Wow. So everybody stopped. He said, the pastor, all the blood ran from his face. (laughs) He turned white as a sheet and said, what do we do? And Bobby said, well, first, why don't we remove her from the prayer team? God help us. I'm serious. I'm just, I'm trying to control some things I could say right now. It should be nice. I don't understand this stuff. This, this is not uncommon. How these people worm their way into positions of, of leadership, I'll never know. But they do, and it's not uncommon. So anyway, that broke something there. But guys, just because somebody looks like a sweet little old granny intercessor, she could be the devil, okay? Let me just tell you, she could be a witch. You don't know. And I always go back to some of my street evangelism. I've, I've done so much of that. And I've run into every type of person, every type of religion, every type of ethnicity. I've, I've talked to Satanists. I've talked to witches. I've talked to homosexuals. I've talked to everybody you could imagine. And some of the scariest looking people in the world, I've taught them, they turn out to be nice and open to the gospel many times. And some of the people you never think, I remember this sweet little lady. It's just like this, just like this story. I was talking to this sweet little old lady, and I thought, oh, you know, it's grandma here, and I'm talking to her about Jesus. She cussed me out. I mean, mean. Cussed me like a sailor. I couldn't believe it. I'm just sitting there just shaking my head. Dear Lord, you never know about people. Don't, you know the old saying, don't judge a book by its cover? You have to test people by the Spirit. You don't know. So that brings me to this last thing. first thing I was going to say is wolves in sheep's clothing. Be careful. I mean, they'd come into Brownsville all the time because they were close to New Orleans. These witches would come in there. They'd sit in the back row with their little rattles or something be chanting, doing their little voodoo, trying to curse the revival. You know There was a voodoo doll sent against the revival, I guess one of the pastors or whatever. The pastor there cut it up in front of everybody. There was a, there was a guy that went there told his testimony that he, some biker took him under his wing. He, he moved out of his house. With, he was living with his grandparents, moved out. He met some biker guy. The biker guy ended up being deeply involved in the occult, called himself a shaman, and began to teach him the dark arts, the occult, teach him how to do different things to curse people, whatever. And so they end up going to Pensacola to the church to curse the church. He's out on the front lawn out there trying to curse the church. He ends up going in and sitting in the front area, and he's still trying to curse the church. He can't do anything. He's trying. Next thing you know, he said the altar call comes. He's on the platform giving the testimony, and I heard it myself. He says, next thing he you knows during the altar call, he said he couldn't move, but he said, I am not lying. I swear to you. He said, I felt two arms get up under my armpit, two hands or whatever get under my armpits and pick me up. And I found myself plopped down in the altar. He got saved and ended up going to the Bible school there later on. So these people come in, but he didn't come in with the right motives to meet Jesus. He came in trying to practice witchcraft. So this is the last thing I want to say, and then we'll pray. The essence of witchcraft. I want people to understand what witchcraft is real quick in a nutshell. This is such a deep involved thing. But there's three areas that you need to know. Number one is illegitimate authority. The the number one essence, the number one essence of witchcraft is illegitimate authority. What that means is, is somebody is in a powerful position that has no business being there. They were not put there by God. And they're controlling things. Now, in a family structure, we know that the husband's supposed to be the head of the home. But if he's not, if the wife is the head of the home, that's an illegitimate authority. Everybody hear me? That's witchcraft. And we know that as a Jezebel spirit. In the same way, I wonder how many different fellowships and groups and denominations or whatever you want to label it out there all over the world hundreds and hundreds of them everywhere. I'm not picking on any of them, but I wonder how many times, more times than not, I would assume, people are put in positions of authority that God had nothing to do with them being in that position. They got in there as a popularity contest. That's illegitimate authority that has no business being in that position. Everybody hear what I just said? I wonder how many times in churches, people aren't praying about it but they're putting people in positions of authority that God did not put there. What did the early church do in the book of Acts? They, whenever it was time to replace Judas, they earnestly prayed about it. And God led them to put Matthias in position. Remember that? Whenever it came time to have other leaders, they needed deacons, they needed people to help. What did they do? They earnestly prayed about it. They heard from God. They wanted to make sure God put them there. Illegitimate authority. Now, the second essence of witchcraft, and this is directly connected to it, is ungodly control. When there is illegitimate authority... There has to be ungodly control because how else if God's not with you and God's not anointed and empowered you and given you true spiritual authority to be there, doing what you're called to do, there's no doubt it's going to turn into manipulation and control or intimidation. But ungodly control. If I remember this story right, Derek Prince was saying that back in the late 70s, God spoke to him And there was something of him in a small group praying. And God spoke to them very clearly. And God told them, I am going to wage war against witchcraft. And he was asking Derek and them to join with him in this. and, and And the Lord told them, the reason I'm waging war against witchcraft is because it has so many of my people bound and so many of my men that have a calling are supposed to do stuff bound up. And God said, I'm waging war. And Derek joined in that. And how many knows Derek Prince was really used to help break the power of witchcraft and break he taught probably the best sermons I've ever heard exposing witchcraft. And how to be free from it and break curses off your life. And finally, you have illegitimate authority, you have ungodly control. And then you have number three, counterfeit revelation. How many times is there false prophecies and false things coming through? You have to discern this. These people bring stuff that's not of God. That can be witchcraft. So let me say it again. Be careful with illegitimate authority that God did not put them there. Number two, ungodly control. People want to manipulate. They want to intimidate. They want to control what's going on. There's a lot of people out there like that. They don't like to be out of control, and they don't like to not be the one making the decisions. And then number three, counterfeit revelation. It all goes together. I wrote a book my wife and I compiled. I mean, in depth. It took me years to write it about the Jezebel spirit. But, I mean, it deals with all of this in the book. You can read it for free on our website. But I didn't want to charge for it. I wanted to always kind of keep it out there. It's helped a lot of people. I even had a pastor from Arkansas, right don't know him from Adam, write me out of the clear blue, said, brother, I was facing one of the worst things I've ever gone through in my life in my ministry with some crazy guy that was in this church that, I mean, there was a history of him being there before this pastor took the pastorate. This guy would come in and just cause all kinds of destruction, all kinds of problems. And he said, my God, what am I dealing with? It was a Jezebel spirit in that man. And he said, I stumbled upon your book. And he said, I can't tell you how much that has helped me to discern it and break through this. And they got rid of that guy. They had to get a criminal trespass and restraining orders, but he's gone. And you know what? That church has been doing good ever since. The power of witchcraft. Some so called Christian. So the roots of it, how does this get in people? How do people begin to operate in illegitimate authority, ungodly control, and counterfeit revelation? I mean, how does this spirit get in them and upon them? The roots of witchcraft go deep. One of the roots is pride that belittles and tears down authority. Did everybody hear that? Pride that belittles and tears down authority. The second is fear that leads to controlling behavior, fear. Some people have a real fear problem. They don't like to be out of control, so they want to control what's around them. Isn't that what's in our culture? Every time somebody gets hurt, something bad happens, they think that they're going to pass all these new laws, so nobody ever gets hurt again. It's just fear No matter how many laws you pass, 1.5 million laws about this specific issue, there's still eventually going to be somebody get hurt. You cannot control everything. that's That's the essence of witchcraft, fear that wants to control. The next one in counterfeit revelation is people have not discerned this. I mean, they'll operate in something that's false and think it's God. There's a scripture in James which says that this type of wisdom does not come from above, but it's earthly and sensual and soulish and demonic. The soulish and demonic kind of go together because some people prophesy out of their soul, and it's only prophesying out of their own head and out of their own emotions. It's not really from God. You know, when you're a baby Christian, you've got to learn to hear from God. I share this a lot because I'm hoping it will help people. I mean, I, had, I broke out my Bible. I'd pray in tongues. ask God to speak to me and show me things. God began to show me things out of the Bible, began to speak to me things. Sometimes I was a little off. Sometimes I was flat wrong. But through that process, God began to teach me the difference between my soul, my mind, my emotions, and Him. And once I learned the difference, now whenever I'm dealing with something and a voice is going on, I know immediately that's just me and that's just what I'm thinking and I just blow it off. But when God speaks to me, I know I know it's him. I've learned that voice. I know it. And so you have to get to where you know the difference between yourself and what God is saying or even what the devil's saying because the devil will mess with your head. He'll put all kinds of thoughts in your head. He'll give you weird, fearful dreams, a sense of doom. I mean, the devil will mess with people's heads. And finally, the roots of witchcraft, disorder and division. It'll kill a move of God, just like at to Susan. Disorder and division. When we're truly in order, we're submitting to authority in the home If the husband will quit rebelling against God and rise up and be what you're supposed to be, be the leader God's called you to be. If wives will quit rebelling against God and submit unto their husband and everything as unto the Lord, and children will honor God by honoring their parents, and that order will come in the home, it's a structure that God can bless. Same thing in the church. If we'll come up under authority, we'll submit. What does Hebrews say? Obey those that rule over you, as ones who will give an account. Just be submitted to church leadership. You may not always understand everything. You may not always agree with every decision, but you submit to leadership. That submission to authority, God can bless that and move mightily. And then keep unity. We all know sometimes we're gonna rub each other the wrong way. Sometimes we're gonna get on each other's nerves. And we joke around in my family, sometimes I've said this a lot of times, I'm like, look, you live together, Every once in a while, you're just going to get on each other's nerves. But it doesn't mean that you don't love each other. Amen? And so if we can just be under authority and just be unified, if somebody upsets you, go talk to them, work it out, keep the unity. If there's order and there's unity, God will pour out his spirit and move mightily. But when things get out of order and the division comes, the demonic starts being active. So, Lord, we thank you for this this time in your word. We bless you. And, Lord, we ask you that you would move like never before and in through river of life. There's something here that's new and fresh. It's in the atmosphere. Lord, fan the flame. Let there be an increase, the anointing increase, the glory. Lord, let us see what they saw to Susa, the, the, the Shekinah glory, the healings and miracles. Lord, let this break forth like never before. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.